Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Some time ago, we talked about experiments in art and design, EAT, a collaboration between artists and engineers from Bell Labs, now known as Nokia Bell Labs. Well, EAT is making a comeback and is reaching out to artists across the world through residency programs and collaborations. Niall Kitson spoke with Donald Hernan, Head of Innovation, Incubation and EAT at Nokia Bell Labs, to talk about how the future of science and engineering will depend on critical thinking and a large dose of creativity. Donald, one of the first things I have to ask you about when we when we talk about EAT or you know, experiments in art and technology, just to prize out the uh, the acronym, it really is that sort of moment in the mid-1960s where there was that Nine Evenings event. So can you tell me a little bit about um, why it was so important for Bell Labs to open up this kind of conversation between sort of the the names of the time like Robert Rauschenberg and John Cage and Lucinda Child who are working in very different media to what you would expect um, people in Nokia Bell Labs to have any sort of interest in. Yeah, the the interesting thing about Bell Labs since it was first created in 1925 is that Bell Labs kind of culturally always embraced diverse perspectives and we had artistic collaborations all the way back to our early inception in the late 1920s with the likes of famous conductors called Leopold Stokowski, you know, where we collaborated with him on the first stereo transmission of sound and high fidelity transmission of sound between different locations in the US. And often what happens is people talk about EAT, this seminal bringing together of arts and technology in the 1960s. And it was such a kind of seminal and global bringing together that had such wide ranging impact that people forget that actually for decades prior to that, Bell Labs had this very strong relationship with the arts and this very strong kind of perspective that we should be fusing art and technology and fusing all these different perspectives. So what happened in the 1960s was a natural kind of growth of decades of deep collaboration between technological, scientific, engineering practice, and then the creative artistic practice that happened to then culminate in this nine evenings in 1966, where it was this very seminal, large bringing together of engineers from Bell Labs. I think ultimately it wound up being about 30 engineers from Bell Labs and some of these absolute luminaries in the artistic field, like Rauschenberg, Cage, Rayner, Whitman, and many others. And they, they had these nine evenings of performances in New York that at the time were kind of very kind of futuristic, both in how the art was shared, but also how the tech and art was presented. It was very avant-garde for its time. At the time, I think, in the moment, people didn't realize quite the impact that it would have, but it, it grew to be this global bringing together of artists and technologists. And culturally, that's just one of the great things about working in a place like Bell Labs, that, yeah, we are the research arm of a large technology company, but it's always embraced 
and were always kind of um, promoted or were allowed to kind of engage in these different avenues of exploration and inquiry, which makes it a very interesting and great place to work. One of the things I, f- I find quite interesting in sort of the gap between maybe the the 1970s, uh, in 1970s, 1980s, up until the, the early noughties was really that sort of decline that there didn't seem to be a similar moment and it's only until maybe the the last few years that the mantle really seems to have been taken up again do do you think there is any reason for that kind of that lull if you will yeah i think there's a lot of reasons but i think the main reason in my view is that if you look at the difference between how artists created their art back then and how engineers or scientists went about doing their work. But especially from the artistic perspective, the artists were kind of pure artists that were very creative. They had these visionary ideas, but often if those visionary ideas require technology, they had no way to implement their visions or their ideas without the support of an engineer or scientist. So they, at that time, heavily relied on the technology capability of their Uh, engineering and scientific collaborators that would have come from Bell Labs and other places to help realize their vision. But what started happening with the proliferation of kind of digital technology, you know, whether it was the transistor, then ultimately personal computers, all of the kind of capability that we now have on our computers for the last few decades, the artists themselves became much more technologically savvy and they were able to by themselves realize or by their own artistic collaborations realize a lot of these technology aspects that they needed the Bell Labs folks to do previously. And for me, there's lots of reasons, but that's probably the biggest one. Now, the difference today is, so the engineers were kind of the technology enablers of the creative vision. The difference today is that a lot of the artists are technologically very strong, very savvy. And some, in fact, some of them are extremely strong technologically, and they've also got this kind of creative perspective, the way they bring their work to the world. And what we come in today in the new EAT program, the Experiments in Arts and Technology program, is that we're bringing emerging technology that no one else has access to. And we're asking those artists to kind of pose these philosophical questions about what will that technology do for or against humanity in the near term future or the longer term future. And from that sense, it's much more of a deeper collaborative exchange in both the directions, whereas in my view, in the 60s and the 70s, it was more kind of transactional in the sense that the engineer provided the technology to enable the creative vision, and it wasn't so collaborative as we might have uh, nowadays. So we've moved from sort of the, the one-way sandbox, if you will, to a real sort of collaborative uh, environment. And I think some of the ideas that you're looking to uh, to uh, explore, they, they really are things that you don't really think about until they're pointed out. I mean, one of, one of the things that you've brought up is the future of innovation is in art and technology collaborating. And it's not necessarily something you think until you look at items that are around us, like the iPhone, uh, just to take a very easy example of showing design in action, but almost invisible design, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the iPhone, so I'll, I'll kind of speak to that a little bit. You know, when the iPhone first came out, it was a spectacular piece of technology that obviously has changed the world. When it first came out, it was a time saver. It was 
It was this one device that took four or five other devices that you had separately that were consuming you time because you were going through all these different things through these different devices. And they brought all that together and they designed it well, packaged it well, great UI, great UX. And initially it was a time saver. And then what happened was we all started putting more and more junk onto our phones, our smartphones, more apps, more everything. And now it's become a kind of a time sink. And of course, how we're using social media and other things are also major time sinks. And there's other downstream negatives associated with that, which are people are becoming very aware of now, other than the fact that it's just consuming our time, it's actually creating, you know, epidemics of digital loneliness and all these kind of things that we can talk about in a lot more detail. So I think all of these things are very interesting. When you think about technology, you know, do you think that Apple with the iPhone or Facebook with their social media platform considered that in 10 years from the initial product release that it could be causing a lot of these tensions and issues in the world? I, I don't think they they did because I know as an engineer and a technologist myself, that's just not the way we're trained and that's not the way we think. So one of the great things I have learned about working deeply uh, collaboratively with the artistic community is they bring that level of critical thinking. They look at the future potential intersections of humanity and technology, both in the positive and the negative. And they help you kind of view the world through that more human-centric lens. And as a technologist, they help you think about the fact that, well, you have a broader responsibility, not just to package a product or design a product or release lines of code, but there actual are global scale human downstream consequences to your work that you should be aware of. And I think generally there's a lack of awareness across all of the engineering disciplines and across most of the tech companies because we're trained a certain way. We view the world a certain way. It's all about technology. And honestly, often we can forget about the human need in all of this. And not just the human need in the present, but the human need in the future, which could be 10, 15 years from now. And I often think about, you know, VR and AR. It, there's a lot of buzz about augmented reality and virtual reality today, but there could be a new version of a social uh, platform that is released in the next five years. And the question is, you know, how detrimental that could that be to humanity in 15 years after that? And this is something that I think about a lot myself in my own work, but I also... And are forced to think about this a lot more through our artistic collaborations, which I find really kind of energizing and invigorating um, being a trained engineer and having worked in that kind of role technology space for so long to have this different perspective um, brought to my attention through these collaborations we have with the artistic community. Yeah, I think there are some great examples of engineers producing uh, solutions to problems that either don't exist or presenting solutions to problems really badly. I think Facebook is particularly guilty in this respect in that you, you might remember a couple of years ago, one of their um, uh, showcases of virtual reality was actually to put Mark Zuckerberg uh, and his avatar in the middle of Puerto Rico to to observe the, the disaster area and the, the relief effort going on. Uh, I, I think that the tech sector does suffer from that element of, of tone deafness uh, where you have um, uh, sort of uh, technology with massive present, uh, potential just being presented in a very inhuman way. Yeah, and I think, you know, we shouldn't pick on Facebook or Apple either. And I know they're just two examples because they're kind of globally leading companies. But 
pretty much everyone in the, in the tech sector is um, does this in different um, shapes and forms. So it's kind of just a it's a problem with how we're trained throughout our engineering degrees and then how we're expected to work when we leave college and we go into the workplace that there's just isn't that kind of depth of critical thinking, especially from the human kind of perspective. And I think there's a large role that the humanities could play in kind of helping the STEM fields just bring the human into it a lot more. And at least if you're going to release a product, at least have had one conversation where you might have said, well, what could be the downstream negative effects of this in 10, 15, 20 years? And, and that would even be a great start compared to what happens today, which is just, let's just dump stuff on the world. Let's just throw crap at the wall. Let's see what sticks. And the kind of, it's this experimental and this nonsense of, you know, fail fast and all of this. I really think that um, people that engage in that practice, they're doing a disservice to the um, training that has happened in the STEM subjects. And I know as an engineer and I did a PhD in kind of fluid mechanics and all to do with airplanes and how they fly and everything. But I know through that training, you, you have to really fundamentally understand what you're doing and you have to think things through. And I think we've largely lost that capability in, in a lot of the undergraduate STEM training that's going on out there. Do you think this sort of lack of uh, intellectual rigor has really opened up the space for uh, philosophers and ethics to insert themselves into the tech community along with artists to say, look, okay, let, let us look. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look at the downstream. Let's go 15, 20 years. Do, is this the sort of input you see people people uh, coming from the arts on top of, you know, practitioners, but to get that sort of the, that theory, that element of philosophy working in there as well? Yeah, I think there's, there's kind of two elements to um, what you said. I think one in general, there's a lack of rigor and intellectual rigor in how the STEM subjects are being implemented in the world in general because business models and market pressures just mean that companies have to just push stuff out there quickly. And then you have this mantra that came from the Valley around fail fast and all of this kind of stuff, you know, which is this kind of virtuous negative cycle that then creates the world we're in today. So I think in general, there's a lack of technological rigor or intellectual rigor around technology, engineering and the STEM subjects. But then to your point, on top of that, then you have this kind of more human centric philosophical rigor that is completely lacking in the in the STEM subjects and engineering and uh, technology development companies where, you know, we really don't understand social behavior to a large extent. We don't understand all of those aspects of culture that have made humans what we are today. And overnight, we're just pushing technology out on the world that is counter to hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. And we don't even consider that. I mean, you know, if you think about it practically from an evolutionary perspective, in a split second, in, in the recent couple of decades, we've completely gone against everything that, have, that has made us what we are as humans, how we've evolved. And we've changed that in a nanosecond um, from an evolutionary perspective. And that is bound to have deep, fundamental consequences on how we behave as humans. And I think this is something we just need to be aware of. We're moving at such rapid breakneck speed with technological advancements, which are all very good and are helping humanity in general. But there's obviously bound to be some of these downstream negative consequences that are blindsiding us. And I think there's more, when we talk about something like digital loneliness, which is a downstream negative consequence of 
the proliferation of all the online media and social platforms. I mean, there are other, probably even worse, potentially downstream consequences that we're completely blind to that might hit us yet. And I, but these are the things we should be talking about and thinking about. Some of the technologies that uh, we're all getting very excited about, some of the uh, emerging technologies out there, uh, like VRAR that we touched upon there, but also AI, robotics and haptics, um, they, they are occupying uh, a space in sort of mainstream thought as kind of far away or clunky or just they, they haven't had that breakthrough moment just yet. Where do you see the artist um, inserting themselves into this sort of um, this milieu? Is it upon the artist in some respects to promote this kind of technology or merely just to explore the, the possibilities? No, I think it's for them to explore the possibilities, both in the positive and the negative. Um, so, for example, if we take something like artificial intelligence, which is a real kind of buzzy topic at the moment for the last couple of years and will be for quite some time. Uh, one of the things that kind of upsets me is there's a lot of negative discourse in the popular media around AI and it's all doom and gloom. It's either going to, you know, remove millions of jobs or robotics plus AI are going to kill all of humanity and humans won't exist anymore. And it's all kind of scaremongering that is attention grabbing headlines and that don't think there's much strong fundamental understanding of the technology that goes behind that and that kind of upsets me you know a little bit i get a bit frustrated by this so with some of our artists we work with we try and show the other dimension of ai which is the creative potential of ai because i believe and a lot of our collaborators believe on the artistic side that ai might actually unlock a creative potential in all of humanity that we couldn't get to otherwise. And through unlocking that creative potential, it might help raise the vast majority of humanity up to another level. Now, that's a very utopian perspective on AI, and we want to show AI that way as a counterbalance to the extreme kind of negative discourse around AI in the popular media. But of course, there's a lot of artists that work on the topic of AI, and they will present it in a more dystopian way and kind of talk about the challenges around that intersection of that particular technology and humanity. And I think you need, you need both sides. But my, my worry at the moment is, you know, I, I attend events and I speak in at these different conferences and we, I have people that come up to me that, you know, might not be in technology, might not work in, in AI, just, you know, general people that have an interest in technology and they're genuinely worried about AI and what it might do negatively to humanity. And, you know, in our particular case, we just want to show the positive potential of AI and the creative potential of AI as a counterpoint. That's not to say I don't believe any of the potential negative scenarios. You have to understand that side of it as well. But the, there's far too much of the communication around AI on the negative, And I think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I think some of the uh, generative art that I've seen come from AI has been uh, kind of from the novelty end of things. I think a year or two ago, there was a developer conference where uh, they claim to have been able to use an algorithm to write poetry in the style of certain poets just based on how they use language before. And it all seemed quite, quite nice. But uh, again, it was built on no novelty value. But then on the other 
flip side of things you had bands like 65 days of static using generative art and people sort of criticizing them going well what's the point in actually going to see you guys if you can just put things into an algorithm uh, and you can do this by yourselves um, I mean, how do you float the idea or how do you go uh, how do you say to people look yes it's generative yes an algorithm has done this but it actually complements the human element instead of replacing it yeah so one of the um that's a you know that's a very good point and that's something you have to be kind of very conscious of as well in our case, we collaborate with an artist called Reaps One, is his stage name, Harry Yef. This is a kind of human in-person name. And he's a beatboxer, so one of these people that can make his voice sound like a computer, and it's kind of crazy to hear what he can do with his voice. So he's a vocal experimentalist, one of the best in the world, and we worked with him on a project that we've released called We Speak Music. It's a documentary series that you, know, you can just find easily online. And in the final couple of episodes of that, six-part series we explore with him the uniqueness of his voice and we also explore the creative potential of artificial intelligence so with him he trained using machine learning algorithms um an ai we say digital twin of his voice and we call this second self and through that process of training you know he gives the algorithms a lot of samples of his voice doing different techniques and different sounds that kind of grows in maturity as it trains and it starts off being very jumbled and you can't discern any patterns or sounds or rhythm. But then eventually after a few thousand hours of training, this thing starts sounding like him and then some later training it starts developing its own sounds and rhythms and techniques. And what was very interesting through this process is that if this AI digital twin of his beatboxing, of his voice, ended up after a certain level of training, giving him, giving him back sounds and techniques that he has never done in his life and that he did not give to it in the training process. And what, what's the output of this is there's a couple of outputs. One of the key things is this has helped him open up his mind around the creative potential of AI, because if he's one of the best in the world and one of the most unique uh, voice uh, vocal experimentalists and one of the most creative people I know, if the AI can challenge him and push him in new directions, can you imagine what it might do for the rest of us. So I think, that's one of the really interesting ways that I look at this technology is that I see it as a an augmentation tool, like any other piece of technology that we've ever used, can be used for good, can be used for bad, obviously. Um, but when it's designed to be used for good, I think it can increase the creative potential of humanity. And that's one of the things that excites me most on the more utopian side of things. Some of the examples that I've seen from from the current round of uh, each collaborators, uh, be they artists in residence or, or short term collaborators, is the breadth of talent that's out there, whether it's somebody working on an installation uh, right the way up to somebody uh, doing um, a project in fashion uh, and the integration of personal assistants. So what what projects have really surprised you so far? There's there, well, almost every conversation and every collaboration I have with any of our artistic collaborators surprises me on many levels and I, I learned so much from it being coming from the engineering kind of scientific technology side of things i think one that really stands out to me is one that we released we went public with last year and, and we showed this year at south by southwest in march in, in austin texas and it's a piece called blooming by an artist um, called lisa park and lisa does a lot of work where she places biometric sensors on people in social circumstances and then she will make visible those invisible signals or interactions between them in that social environment. So she will either sonify it, like turn it into music or sounds, or she will visualize it. 
somehow. And um, we're very interested in Lisa's work and other work like that because the actual vision of the EAT lab in modern times is to create new ways for humans to emotionally connect and to emotionally understand each other. So you can see how the work of Lisa would play into that, on, you know, sensor, putting sensors on the body or around the body and then making visible these invisible signals between them in different social circumstances. And with Lisa, we wanted to explore the importance of touch in the human condition. And we wanted to explore it with the output being us learning more about haptics. So haptics is like the um, simulation of touch using, we'd say, motor technology or heat or cold technology, things like that. Like the vibration in your phone is a form of haptics. So we wanted to understand the, you know, the importance of haptics in the human condition, the importance of touch between humans in what makes it important for us to be in proximity with each other and for us to communicate in certain ways. And then we wanted to learn from that that there might be different ways that we might then connect people over a distance using technology. So with this piece of work called Blooming, Lisa developed this holographic cherry tree installation. And when you enter into the space, you have to go through this kind of ceremonial process. So you have to take off your shoes and socks. You enter the space, it's quite dark. You walk through this very nice artificial grass and then you step onto these very basic sensor pads that we developed. I'll explain what they do in a minute. When you enter the space, the cherry tree is in its unblossomed state. So it's kind of just barren, you know, tree and limbs. And then when two or more people make physical contact in the space over the sensor pads and different technology we used, the cherry tree blossoms in front of you and the music changes. And depending on how you physically connect with the other person, whether it's a hand holding, you know, hand on the shoulder, hug, kiss, whatever, the cherry tree blossoms in a different state based on you actual actually making physical connection with another person beside you. And we had a kind of stunning response to this work where we had a number of people, either couples, families, parents, kids, you name it, getting very emotional, breaking down, crying. And we had a number of strangers that had very strong emotional responses when they were asked to enter this space and make physical connection with another human being. And the reason for that, we realized, is that in our modern kind of virtualized, digitized, all of our connection with anything or anyone is basically through our smartphones. People have lost that kind of in-person, proximal, physical touch connection to other humans, which is actually one of the most important things in in what makes us humans in the first place. And we've largely lost that in modern times. And I think that was a reminder to people of the importance of people being in proximity, of making physical connection of different forms. But of course, the way that was expressed to them through the growing of the cherry tree, through the sounds and the lighting and the whole ceremonial experience kind of brought that experience to a whole new level. And through that project, we learned that instead of being like everyone else, developing these very large, clunky, um, haptic gloves, or these very large, clunky VR headsets, there can be a way to connect people that is much more human and maybe we should not. And this is the question. Maybe we shouldn't be going down this stimulation of touch through technology. Maybe we should always try and insist or ensure that we can have people communicate, but in a more human way. So that was a really surprising one for me, not just in what we learned about the technology and the importance of human touch, but also in the way that people reacted to that. And as a technologist or an engineer, I never could have developed that piece such that it would have got an emotional response from the audience like that. And that's one of the key things with the artist is they will 
think about the world and present their work in a way that's very provocative and that work will get a response and that through that response people are forced to think about their place in the world and the world around them in a very different way and that's one of the things that excites me quite a lot about working with the artistic community is that they have this ability to provoke deep thought and critical thinking in everyone else and to do that the right way is complicated and it's not easy but when it's done well it can be very um, powerful. Perhaps the the greatest weakness if you will of the Nine Evenings event was that it took place and that was kind of it as far as uh, the general public was concerned. You probably don't have the same issue in in the current incarnation of EAT anyway so is it going to become a a movable feast? Will, Will we start seeing EAT travel? Yeah, absolutely. So we've already, so I suppose to, to give a bit of context on the modern EAT program, we just started it just a couple of years ago, actually. Um, and we started around the 50th anniversary of that nine evenings, which took place in 1966. And what happened was we were invited to a bunch of 50th anniversary celebrations all around the world, but mainly in New York. Um, I'm based in New Jersey at the moment, so it's very easy for me to just hop into the city and attend these things. And we started having these absolutely spectacular conversations with the artistic community. And we realized this was a dimension of our work that we were completely missing. And we decided then a few years ago to kind of dip our toes back in the art and tech waters. And we started some smaller scale relationships and collaborations that went very well. We started a residency program where we learned a lot, was very valuable. And about a year ago, I moved onto this role permanently um, to lead to start a new lab in Bell Labs and hired a few creative technologists to work on this. And since then, we've been growing the program um, quite a lot where we have, you know, at any time of the year, we're probably working with up to 10 artists, um, some in residency mode, some in one-off project collaboration mode. And we've exhibited the work um, in, in different places all over the world. It's not at the scale that we would like it yet, but that's something we're working towards. And that kind of thing just takes time when you're a new program but for example we exhibited at south by southwest in march we had a large exhibit in in jersey city last year called only human at mana contemporary and our artists are showing their work and the work we've done with them all over the world on a weekly basis so i think there's a bit of momentum there we're, we're hoping to grow it and get more exposure to some of these idea ideas and this kind of process of humanizing technology and it's something that i talk a lot about as well all over the the world is kind of the importance of bringing art and technology together, but the importance of doing it the right way. If it's treated as a check the box exercise, it'll absolutely fail. And if you measure it with normal business metrics or KPIs, it'll fail. So there needs to be a deeper understanding of the complexity in doing something like this. And also there needs to be an understanding how you need to educate the kind of key stakeholders on a large tech company about how this is different and it should be measured differently as well. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Donald Hernan, Head of Innovation, Incubation and EAT at Nokia Bell Labs. That's it for our show for this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on that and all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or, of course, you can listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening as always and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie.
Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Radio.